0: I'm joined today by Catherine Bertini, the former executive director of the World Food Program. Catherine is a distinguished leader in international organization management, food security, gender equality, and humanitarian action. Over the course of her accomplished career, Catherine has improved the efficiency of organizations serving poor and hungry people in the United States and around the world. Catherine, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You're someone I've long admired, and I'm really glad we've had a chance to, to, to spend some time together here today at CSIS. You have a new report out called Leading Change in United Nations Organizations. You did this wearing – you were a Rockefeller Foundation fellow, and you just published this in June. You sent it to me. I read the whole thing, I swear. I read the whole thing. I really liked it. And as I told you in an earlier roundtable, I generally don't read other people's stuff. I really read this, and it was really good. And I'm in the report business, and I said to you in my meeting earlier today – this report has easily has legs for at least the next 10 years. It's a very useful contribution. Tell us, what is the report and why'd you write it?
1: Happy to, but first, thanks. Thanks to you, Dan, and thanks to CSIS. Sure. And thank you for your leadership, this is the second time in only a few months that I've been here to talk about UN issues with you. So thank you. I wrote this with the idea that there needed to be some sort of information available to incoming leaders in UN agencies could be the heads of agencies, who's primarily written for, could be some other senior people in the agencies. But it was also pointed out to me that many people who come in at fairly senior positions but not at the top don't even have any sort of guidance about what it's like to join the UN organization. And unless you've been steeped in the UN, you do not know what kind of animal you are about to join until you have had some time there. So this was written with help from lots of other, probably a couple dozen people who have been in the system at senior in senior positions. It was written in order to give, I hesitate to use the word guidance because it's only if what you take of it, but our own experiences that are hopefully be helpful to a new person so they don't have to make a lot of the mistakes the rest of us did.
0: So I looked at this, if you look at this report, you've got a series of topics. One is coming in Another one is leading a UN organization. Number 3 is leading change. So talk about some of the the buckets of this report. So coming in, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, it's critical the first few days and the first few months for anybody in any new organization. But what do you do when you go into this international organization, especially when you haven't been in that kind of a system before? How do you learn about what you need to do, how you need to present yourself, how you should communicate, that you should communicate a lot, how you should listen? There's all sorts of things that are important to think about before you even walk in the door. We even talked about staff because some people think when they go to a new job, they have to walk in with an entourage. Yes, an entourage is a nice word. Um, (laughs) It's French. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Well, yes. Or something. Yes. Uh, And uh, we make the point we collectively and yeah. people together make the point that you know, if you walk in with more than one person, you're sending a message to your organization. You really don't trust it, all it's those a, bureaucrats. It's a bad
0: message. Yes. You're sending a bad message. Yes. Yeah, I, I was saying to you earlier, I saw this when, um, in a couple of instances. I've seen several World Bank presidents enter and leave the World Bank in the last 15 years. And it seemed to me that if you brought in more than one person, you were setting yourself up for trouble.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can over time say, gee, I really need an expert in finance and I remember knowing so-and-so and and maybe you can recruit them. But when you walk in- On the
0: first date.
1: When on the first day when you walk in the door- uh, you have to be really careful uh, the message messaging that you send. And one of the things about the U.N. that's a little bit different beyond the culture and each organization has a different culture is that it's heavily staff based on purpose because that's the kind of work they do that need a, lo- a lot of staff support. So if you don't go with the well, understanding what, yeah. of the staff that you're dealing with, you don't trust them and then they don't trust you and you don't build confidence, it's going to be very difficult to, to change or even delete.
0: So, you have a second chapter around leading a UN organization. What's it mean to be a leader? How do you be a role model? There's a number of things in this chapter I found really interesting. Talk a little bit about what's it mean to lead a UN organization.
1: When you lead a UN organization or any big organization, first of all, you have to know where you're trying to go. You have to know what your strategy is. You have to know what your end game is with the organization. But then you also have to be controlling yourself to make decisions around what that objective is. So if you go off from what your objective is, you can end up getting yourself irreparably down the wrong uh, direction, or opening doors that you don't really want to open. For instance, if you say that you're only going to accept a certain kind of commodity, if your business is going to be to distribute that commodity, then you better be sure not to take the pressure from Congressman so-and-so who wants you to buy something from his district. district. Because if you do, then what do you do when the next parliamentarian comes in and wants you to buy something from his district? I mean, you, you have to be very, careful about what you do. That goes also with, uh, with hiring staff. You know, if some country comes and bounds on you, you've got to hire this guy from my country. Unless that's absolutely the totally appropriate fit done in a transparent way, you're going to open yourself up to other other ambassadors saying, well, why not me? What we call it in the report is a courage of making the right decision. And, and really, until I read some other work about this, I didn't appreciate that Courage is also decision-making. And I felt at WFP, I made a lot of tough decisions. But adding the word courage to that really makes it be more important in your deliberation about that decision.
0: So leaders bring themselves to the job. And you talk in the report in very compelling ways about the fact that sometimes you're different. So there's two sets of pictures. One is on page ten and page eleven, which is sort of let's call it the senior leadership of the UN in 1992, and then there's a picture of the senior leadership in, in 2018, and it's sort of like that old Sesame Street thing, like what's different or what's changed. It's sort right. of, and the listeners will have to imagine this. And then on page 18, you have a picture of the very few uh, senior women on your on your staff when you first started the World Food Program in 1992. And then as you were leaving in 2002, a much, much larger picture of the senior women on the staff at the World Food Program in 2002, after your 10 years as, as head of the World Food Program, before you became Undersecretary General for Management. I think you know where I'm going with, these, with what I'm getting at. Talk a little bit about those two sets of pictures, and there's a reason I think you included them in the report.
1: Sure, the commonality in all the pictures are more women. In 1992, there were three women UN agency heads out of about 40, I guess. And also, it's a picture of mostly people from the north, or at least it's what it looks yeah, yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually those first three were appointed in – I was the third one appointed ever to run a UN agency. You were so, the
0: third woman ever appointed to a UN agency? Mm-hmm,
1: the first was Dr. Nafis Sadiq from Pakistan who, who ran UNFPA and then the second was Sadako Agata from Japan who ran UNHCR and then me. Now, Secretary General Gutierrez has made this uh, an important position that he's going to have 50% of his senior staff and uh, appointees being women. And so that's... It's
0: reflected in the picture.
1: Quite reflected in the picture, even though this early on. So it's, it's not half yet, but it's a lot more.
0: And then talk about the picture at uh, World Food Program.
1: When I joined WFP, there were six women who were considered senior, that would be in U.S. government standards like a GS-15 and above, five at the GS-15 level if I use U.S. equivalents, and one, and then plus me, 10 times over. We improved that by the time I left. It's, it was 60 when I left. When I got there, I said, why do we have so few women all together in international st- staff? We had 17% female. And I asked some of my colleagues, well, why is this? And of course, all my senior colleagues were male. They said, well, it's because we do guy things here. And I said, well, what are guy things? Well, it's trains and trucks and planes and helicopters and ships and, uh, you know, you can't find women to work in those areas. And I said, oh, we will, oh, we will. (laughs) So I make the point even one of the women that we recruited at WFP, From Senegal was Fatma Samura, who joined the logistics team, and now she's the secretary general of FIFA.
0: Oh, FIFA the soccer? Yes. Really?
1: Yes, with that logistics background. So
0: can you get me a messy autograph you think can you can we talk about that offline <laughs> that's great so that's really interesting so so we're going mean, to have to talk about this we
1: move so now if you look on twitter or others you'll see unhas the un humanitarian air service well that is wfp run and it really got started with our efforts in logistics because we did do these guy things these logistics things very well and we ultimately obviously made it not just guy things and i i tweeted out one of the pictures the other day of a female pilot of one of the UNHAS flights. And I I told the story about the guy things and now how great it is that UNHAS, the UN Air Service, has many female pilots.
0: So I want to talk about the leading change. You have a very interesting theory of change in the report. You interviewed other leaders about how change happened. Talk a little bit about what leading change means in the U.N. system.
1: Right. Well, ultimately, we wanted this report to be helping to give information to leaders who do want to change from within and how they need to deal with their governing bodies and how they need to interact with their staff and how they need to listen to their partners and NGOs and others. So we said there's really two kinds. There's one kind of opportunistic change where you have no choice. You have to do something to change because of circumstances outside of your control. But more commonly. You change because you've decided that you really need to change. Now, I don't believe in change for change's sake. I think you need to get there. You need to assess. You need to see what you need to to do. And then create a strategy and set that strategy with a lot of help, listening to a lot of people, and then build the blocks in order to work toward that change. And that's what we did at the World Food Program. Now, when I joined WFP, two things were critically important timing-wise. The Soviet Union collapsed three months before I arrived, And then also three months before I arrived, coincidentally, WFP got its own authority to be be able to make decisions because we used to be part of another UN organization called FAO. My predecessor, Jim Ingram from Australia, worked diligently for 10 years and wrote a book called Bread and Stones about this to divorce WFP from – FAO. So, what I had as the brand new leader at WFP was the authority to make all sorts of decisions that my predecessors never would be able to do. And I had a changing world where we had to respond in the Caucasus and in the um, former Yugoslavia and in Somalia and in southern Africa with the drought. But we had new abilities. So, we had to look. At the totality of our organization, what did our finance operation look like? Was our HR operation up to snuff and what kind of a IT system we had? And by the way, one of my consultants at the time said, you know what, your IT system is like in the 80s and your HR system is like in the 70s and your, your finance system is like in the 50s. And we had to virtually change everything. But we went to the board. I did a couple initial reviews. I had our external auditors do some reviews. We went to the board and said, look, these are some of the problems that we have. But since I initiated those reviews and not them, I had the time to also present to them at the same time what our solutions would be and then get their buy in.
0: You wrote this report. Who do you want to read this report? Because I always think about who's your audience?
1: First and foremost, our audience are entering uh, senior officials in UN agencies. But it's also for other level officials in UN agencies. It's for board members. It's for governments. It's for, like in the U.S. context, the State Department, AID, uh, HHS, uh, USDA, whoever. The Hill influences, sure. The Hill, state
0: international organizations. Yes, right, state international bureau, organizations. Board, um, N.S.C. N.S.C. Um,
1: so that those people can help give some guidance or and understand the context. In which new leaders are entering.
0: I hosted a roundtable for you earlier today with some very smart and senior people in Washington who have thought deeply on UN related issues or worked on UN, United Nations related issues. And they, to a person, all found this a very useful report. And so what I said in the meeting was I know everyone is going to say this is a great report because it is a great report. But what do we do with this? How do we operationalize this? What you know, you ha- must have some thoughts about ways you'd like to see this. Certainly, let's just, let's hope that everybody that needs to read this reads this, and let's hope everyone that reads this takes action from it. But are there some other things we need to be collectively doing? I have some views myself after having read this and listened to this conversation. But what are some thoughts that you have about this?
1: Okay, well, just a couple things about the report to help people read it. One, it's available online. Yeah, where
0: can I, if I want to go find this, where can I get this? Yeah,
1: you can get it on on my personal website, CatherineBrutini.com, or you can get it on the Chicago Council uh, and Global Affairs website. Yeah, let me
0: just, let me just, I failed to mention that the the Chicago Council generously, and you have had a great relationship with them for a long time, supported this and and published this, right?
1: Yes, with the funds from my Rockefeller Foundation So thank you
0: Rockefeller for the money and thank you Chicago Council for publishing it. Correct. So so if they go, if you go to the Chicago Council website, Mm-hmm. It's, it's there. Yes, it is. And it's on catherinebertini.com which is Correct. Catherine with a C. So there's lots of ways you can access it.
1: Right. The other thing about the report itself is that it's not written in UNEs and it's not written like as, as an academic. It's, it's not. written person to person. It's written to reach that person who is going into the system who hasn't been there before. So now to your point, one of the things that came up at your wonderful roundtable today was that what's missing from the entry of a lot of people into the U.N. system is any sort of kind of orientation. Well, We make that point quite strongly in the paper. So um, we talked about whether or not there's a way to build a very light – entity with some senior people who have been in the UN, for instance, who could give advice to new people coming in. Uh, And we talked about whether or not there's other sorts of training that should be available to people within the system. So those are things to, I think, further flesh out and have further conversations about.
0: What kind of a reaction have you gotten to the report?
1: Oh, I love the reaction to the report because people, one UN agency has sent me a note, said, Ugh! When I first got this on my mail, I thought, oh, another report about UN reform. And then I actually read it and I thought, wow, this is so different than anything else. It's as somebody today said, it's not like a normal think tank report. It's kind of an insider view of what it's like to, to, to be in the UN. That is what it is. Many people have said, you know, this is not just applicable to the UN. This is applicable to government. This is applicable to NGOs. I have a friend who's sending it around to local, county and regional mm. NGO new leadership because they think mm. it's it's relevant there. It has legs, I think, um, even beyond the UN, but I appreciate your thinking that it'll be around for a while to, to send to new organizations. There's organizations organization with new executive heads who I hear from like three different people have been sending this to, to the new executive head.
0: There was a demand that was needed to be met. So I think it was worth a year of your time as a Rockefeller Foundation fellow. Was it probably took about a year to do all this? A little less than that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a fellow for about a year and a half. But it took us mm, seven months or so for this.
0: And you did you had a round, you had a meeting at at Bellagio?
1: Yes. Because when we determined we wanted to go in this direction, Rockefeller Foundation was kind enough to allow us to use their conference center in Bellagio. It's in a
0: fabulous place. It is.
1: And so we invited former uh, agency heads in and deputies who tried to get a mix from around the system. And so they came, their pictures in the book, They I quote from every single one of them. They're the, the basis of the experiential uh, references. And then the experiential references, of course, are built around my own perspective. But then also I was able to quote from papers and books by a few other former UN leaders to expand on some of the ideas.
0: Well, it's fabulous. Catherine, I really appreciate you coming in. I love the report. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you so much, Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.